welcome everybody. Uh, after a short hiatus, we're back uh, doing the conversations between Caleb Morpin and Hapalbra. And we're going to pick up right where we left off uh, because it was a, an interesting moment where we, where we stopped before. We were discussing aspects of the Chinese Revolution and we had got to the Cultural Revolution. And that's something that a lot of people have a few ideas about. And there's a lot of misinformation floating about. Uh, so I really just want to start by asking Hrapal, if you would, Hrapal, could you just tell us briefly what was the Cultural Revolution, when was it, and why was it launched? Well, there's a, there's a history to, to it. When the Chinese Communist Party held its eighth, eighth Congress, um, which was in uh, 1956, just after the... Um, the 20th Party Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, where Khrushchev had attacked, had attacked Stalin. So it came in the aftermath of it. And at that Congress, various decisions were, 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 were taken. And among other decisions, um, the main thing that was said was that the main contradiction in the country is between the backward productive forces and the advanced political system. And therefore, everything had to be done uh, to increase production. And secondly, um, references to from the Chinese Party's Communist Party's uh, constitution, references to Mao Zedong thought were, were removed. And there were kind of fairly strong indications that they were fighting against what they called the personality cult, and which really was an, a veiled attack on 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 on, on Mao Zedong, and that was the Eighth Party Congress, and the position of the General Secretary, which had been abolished in the 30s, was reinstated, and Deng Xiaoping was made the General Secretary of the Communist Party of China, and Liu Shaoqi was given the position. Of being the head of the state, which he in the position which he assumed few months after the eighth, eighth, eighth party congress. And Mao was unhappy, not about the personality cult thing, but about the decisions that were being taken, because he was always of the view politics must be in command. He was not against increasing productivity, he was not against increasing the productive forces, but he obviously rightly believed that protective forces on their own mean nothing unless they are actually related to the relation of production. He was quite following what Stalin had stated very explicitly in the economic problems of socialism in the USSR, that the relation of productions are the principal uh, side which impel society forward. You can have all the productive forces, but if you regress, and go back on the relation of production, it's not going to do much uh, as far as the working, working class is, is concerned. Anyway, soon after that, Mao Zedong launched what is called um, the uh, Hundred Flower mo mo Movement. Let hundred, hundred flowers blossom, let hundred thoughts contend. Now, the Soon, this was allowed. The intelligentsia, hell of a lot of them, 
simply did not criticize the function of the Communist Party. They attacked the very existence of the Communist Party. They attacked communism and Marxism as being dull. And they, they didn't really want to have anything. Within two months, the movement had to be suppressed as being counter-revolutionary. Now, there are, there are three views as to why this movement was launched. One is that China at that time was desperately short of intellectual scientists, engineers, and it wanted to galvanize the support of this section of society for the development of Chinese economic plans. And if the intelligentsia could be lured by saying, well, you can criticize if we're doing anything wrong, that'd be a good idea. The second one is that actually it was the indirect way of Mao Zedong getting the intelligentsia to criticize the right-wingers in the Communist Party of China. And the third one, which is much more cynical, is that Mao actually wanted the various sections of the intelligentsia to out themselves as being reactionary so that they could be repressed. You can take your cho choice as to what, what it was. Uh, I don't think it was the last one, but he certainly realized that this is not going to work. Instead of 100 flowers blossoming, it's a lot of weeds that it has given rise to that, that, that debate. So that was suppressed. And it was soon followed by the great leap, leap forward, uh, where large communes were established, cooperative forms uh, or the collective farms were turned into communes, uh, huge communes um, containing about 4,000 households in e e e each of them. And um, there are various rules in the communes. Um, the emphasis was not on material incentives. It was all on the correct kind of po politics. In my view, this has been really a weakness in, in Chinese economics, that in the period of transition from capitalism to socialism, you cannot eliminate all the wage differentials. You know, it just will not work. It's not Marxist, it's not, it's not Leninist, but they were really very overzealous in, in trying to do that. They wanted to actually eliminate the distinction between countryside and, and, the, and the towns. Again, for that distinction to be eliminated, you need a number of preconditions which simply were not, not pre present, present, present in, in, in China. Uh, and in the end, the whole thing didn't work. And we come to that, why it didn't work. But the main thing is that during that period, tremendous amount of work was done. Public uh, projects, which involved thousands and tens of thousands of people were built. Irrigation works, you know, electrification, um, communes were producing a lot of goods, you know, from bicycles to shirt buttons and all the, all the rest of it. And they were at one time producing 15% of, 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 of the total GDP, GDP of China. And these are the ones that later on were to become uh, uh, to town and village, village and, and, and enterprises. And they came actually to employ eventually something like 135 to 140 million people. And they got rid of a lot of unemployment in rural, rural China. But all the same, the great leap forward did not make 
a tremendous success. And there were a number of reasons for it. One was during that period, China suffered from very bad weather. Somehow socialist countries always tend to be attacked by God. Uh, you know, bad weather comes in, in the way. So it's either flooding or it's drought, etc. for three years from 59 to, 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 to 62. At the same time, because of the relations with, uh, with Khrushchevite Soviet Union deteriorating, and the Khrushchevites withdrew uh, help, 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 help from, from, from China. And rich peasants had been allowed to join the collective farms and, and communes. And they, of course, resented very much the leveling up agenda. And there were others who didn't like the excessively burdensome work uh, quotas that they were asked to, asked to perform. In the end, the communes had to be downsized. And eventually, they came to uh, include 30, 40 households, etc. After that, another movement was started. It was called the Socialist Education Movement, because Mao was very worried that ideas of capitalism um, were taking hold in the countryside. Uh, peasants wanted more private plots. They wanted to be able to sell their product in the market, which they had been allowed to do by the 8th Congress. And he wanted to start an education movement. Now, the question was, the party endorsed the education movement because Mao had this kind of authority. Even if the people who were opposing him were in a majority and, and did not approve of it, they went along with it. But their main idea always was to actually resist in a completely different way and basically prevent the implementation of such, 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 such a policy. They had different ideas as to how the socialist education movement should be run. Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping wanted it under the control of the party. Mao said you had to mobilize the masses. Again, they couldn't come to uh, any, any, any agreement on that. And the differences between Mao and Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping, on the other hand, were exacerbated. And that's what really leads to the launch of the Cultural Revolution in 1966. And the basic idea behind the Cultural Revolution was that China had built a socialist economic base. Agriculture had been collectivized. Industry was mainly owned by the state. Capitalists had been eliminated. Some of the old capitalists were there, but they were receiving, receiving a small uh, if, if you like, um, amount, amount of money everywhere, every year by way of compensation. But they basically been uh, generally got, got rid of. But the superstructure, said Mao, was still bourgeois. There were people who were trying to restore capitalism. And what we needed, he said at the time, was a cultural revolution that will actually do away with the bourgeois superstructure. Further on, he asserted that this bourgeois superstructure was very much controlled by capitalist voters within the party. And he said the top people in the party who had control over the organization throughout the country were taking the capitalist road. And he singled out two people who were taking the capitalist road, Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping. 
Liu Shaoqi was number one person taking the capitalist road, and Deng Xiao was, was number two taking, take, taking the capitalist road. So the purpose of the Cultural Revolution was to have a superstructure that will not allow for the restoration of capitalism. That is really exactly the purpose behind the Cultural Revolution. Uh, I hope that that's enough to start with. That's a very good introduction. Thank you, Hibal. And just before I uh, go over to, to Caleb, um, I just wanted to clarify, in the in the beginning there where you were talking about um, the difference between productive forces and relations of production, productive forces is the amount of, of productive forces you have, right? Your ability to produce goods or, or crops or whatever, and relations of production are to do with who owns them and how those people relate to one another in, in the process of producing things, right? So, Socialist relations of production is when the means of production, the factories and the land are owned uh, by society, by a working class state and run by workers in the interests of workers, as opposed to being run by, owned by an exploiting class and the people employed are making money for the owners. Yes, that's, that's what we're clarifying. So it's socialist relations of production, which enable the productive forces to really produce in the way they're able to without limits yeah that's okay. right just wanted to clarify that okay caleb but, but I, no but <clears throat> no one get the idea that just because you have advanced the relation of production then you don't have to worry about the productive forces they are exceptionally important you've got to back them up by by strengthening the productive forces by having the best technology by organizing production on the basis uh, of, of, of being able to produce the maximum with the minimum amount of labor and resources. Great. Caleb. Well, I just wanted to ask, um, I've heard before people argue that Lu Xiaoqi was kind of the, uh, the expression within the Chinese Communist Party of the Soviet political line of Khrushchevism. Is that accurate? Well, I've never read that, but from the way they behaved, it's probably perfectly all right. Especially if you read, Caleb, the nine letters written by the Communist Party of China in response to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. They were published in a volume called The General Line of the, of the International Com Communist Movement. Now, if you, for example, read the article on Stalin, on the one hand, it pays a glowing tribute to him as a great revolutionary and great theoretician and all the rest of it. And then it goes on to criticize him for 101 one things. And it's clear to me that this letter was written by two hands and not by one hand. No person writing could consistently write that kind of letter. So there was a, in my view, there was a struggle within the, the uh, top echelons of the leadership of the Communist Party of China as to how to respond to Khrushchev. Um, after the first two years or so, after the 20th Party Congress, Mao had become very critical of the, of the Khrushchevites. And I'm not sure everybody else was, was critical of that. So it's perfectly possible that Liu Xiaoqiu and Deng Xiaoping uh, were, well, if not in words, certainly in practice were Khrushchevites because they wanted market mechanisms introduced in China.
Right. And I guess the feeling was that that China wasn't, you know, able to have socialism. Right. They were calling themselves a people's democracy. Um, uh, it was a new democratic government. I think the feeling was that they, they were too poor to actually have a full on socialist economy. Was that part of the, the disagreement? Well, I mean, they all said that, you know, that by the eighth party Congress, collectivization had been completed. The um, industry had been had, had, had been nationalized. Um, a lot of improvements had been made. That China had left the democratic stage behind. It had entered the socialist stage. I mean, on that, I certainly have not seen open disagreements between the various leaders on that point. Okay. But it still continued to be called the People's Democratic Republic. That is still its name is still People's Republic of China. So the name certainly did not change with it. Do you feel like um, the the situation that uh, provoked the Cultural Revolution, if you like, was uh, exacerbated uh, by the Sino-Soviet split? Um, what influence did all of that have? Well, it certainly would have had an in, in, uh, in influence because in the sense um, it certainly got Mao very alarmed that what was happening in the Soviet Union could easily have happened in, Ch in China. So it, it it would have had had an in, in, indirect influence um, on, on on China, uh, and 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 the subsequent dispute exacerbated. But of course, once this dispute exacerbated, nobody dared openly to support Khrushchev. They might have done within the Communist Party's. Central Committee or Politburo, but I'm not personally aware that there was that debate. So could you talk to us a little bit about the, the forms that the Cultural Revolution took? You know, you said that Mao launched it to try to create a movement from below that would make it impossible for capitalist roaders to take hold in China. Uh, how did it express itself, the Cultural Revolution? Well, it expressed itself, first, first of all, in the two top um, institutions of learn learning in China, the Beijing University, which those days were called Peking University, and was even referred to as the as the Piata. And then there was the Tsinghua University, which was a, an institution very prestigious uh, for learning scientific subjects. And first in Beijing and then in Tsinghua, the students uh, were the ones who instigated this because as happened so often in China, there was somebody called Wuhan. He wrote a play called High Jui Dismissed, which refers to some official in the Ming Dynasty who had been dismissed by the emperor because he criticized the emperor. And he's supposed to have said to the emperor, the people are suffering you don't listen to anyone that is the problem with you and that play was performed in prestigious theaters owned publicly and funded publicly and it received critical acclaim in the prestigious journals in the people's republic of china and it was actually a veiled reference to mao Zedong, who is supposed to have dismissed the then defense minister, Peng Te Huai, 
because he criticized Mao. Now that that's another story, whether that is true or not. And so the, the, the new emperor is Mao, who cannot take any criticism. And the honest official is Peng Te Huai. Peng Te Huai was a defense minister. He was also, by the way, the person who led the Chinese forces in, during the Korean War. And so, um, and then once that was done, written, um, one of the subsequent so-called Gang of Four, um, Yao Wenjuan, wrote an article in a Shanghai newspaper criticizing this play. And the mayor of Beijing, or Peking as it was called then, refused its publication, and what's more, refused the distribution um, of, the, of that article in Beijing. But then, of course, he was kind of surpassed in a very indirect way. That article was, was, was published. I believe it was in the, uh, in the People's Liberation Army, Army newspaper. And once that happened, its publication obviously um, received wide uh, pub 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 publicity and uh, the uh, and the article was distributed and after that um, a student from and from the philosophy department and five of her colleagues wrote a wall 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 poster you know big character posters which were put on the walls which were very common those days in in, in china criticizing the, 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 the capitalist voters and asking the youth to rise up against cap, cap, capitalist voters. And they were sought to be repressed as counter-revolutionaries by the president of the university. And the president had the support of the mayor of Peking, who was also a member of the Central Committee, and of course had the support of Liu Shaqi and Liu Shaoqi sent what is are known as work teams to control this, this movement. They locked up the students and asked them to study Liu Shaoqi's book, How to Be a Good, good, good Communist. Now, I'm not asking you your opinion about how to be a good communist. When I read it at the time, I found nothing, nothing, nothing wrong, wrong, wrong with it. And, and, and this lasted 50 days. These are called the 50 days of white terror by 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 the people who were opposed to Liu Shaoqi, etc. And so this became exacerbated. There was a lot of trouble at the university. It spread then to Tsinghua University, where there was a, 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 a leader called um, some, somebody, I think, Tafu. Ta, ta uh, he is a perfectly crazy character, but he became a household name in, in China because of his leadership of, of the movement in the Tsinghua University. And from there, of course, the movement spreads to other parts of China. So it started in the universities because the, the word cultural revolution implies that there was something wrong with the culture. And since the universities molded young people, youth people, the successors of the generation of old revolutionaries they had to have the right attitudes and right ideas. They got to get rid of old customs, old ideas, old habits, and adopt proletarian out out outlook. And that was the purpose of this this, uh, 
this revolution, the, hence the cultural revolution. So universities were very important and it's from there that the movement spread further. And did it work? Sorry? Did it work, the cultural revolution? Did it do what it was supposed to do? Well, it did in the sense, in my own view, is that at least for 10 years, it stopped the marketization of the economy. So it delayed the marketization of the economy. It wasn't in the end successful, because that's another story. Story what happened big, um, and to, to, to the to the cultural cultural revolution um, after a period of time. There was big struggle between the two two sides on the central committee. Liu Shaoqi was got rid of very early. Deng Xiaoping was removed from all his positions, but he stayed quietly in in the background and was brought back in 1975 and assumed very important positions in the party and in, in and in the central committee as well as in the in the in the in the army but then he was dismissed again in 1976 because there were big demonstrations following the death of uh, chun lai and these demonstrations were allegedly for the purpose of mourning the death of Chun Lai, but actually they were hardly a veiled attack on, on Mao Zedong. And the demonstrators were removed by, by, by the police and Deng Xiaoping was dismissed again uh, and relieved of all, all the posts. And, uh, but then soon, soon after, in September 1976, Mao passed away and then it starts a new chapter, it's a new era again. Caleb. Well, um, you know, when you when you talk about this this play that was a veiled attack on Mao Zedong that was being performed, you know, at the highest levels of Chinese society, uh, that makes me think about how, you know, when you have a, a Marxist Leninist party running a country, that party is going to practice democratic centralism and, and the debates within the party are going to be kept internal. Uh, because of the fact that they need to have ironclad discipline and hold the socialist society together. And uh, but yet you will see works of art uh, that kind of reflect the underlying differences. It's clear there was a big section of the Chinese Communist Party. It was turning against Mao Zedong. Uh, and they made this play as a way of kind of expressing that. Um, and that kind of it was reaction to this play that kind of spurned the Cultural Revolution. Um, and I, I see examples of this in other socialist societies. I know in the early 90s in Cuba, they made a film called Strawberry and Chocolate, um, I, which is a film. It's about like a young member of the Cuban Communist Party who befriends an older guy who's like an intellectual who's who's homosexual. And they and the guy who's the the, the guy who's the older guy, you know, ends up becoming basically, you know, a, a counter revolutionary ends up leaving Cuba. But this is seen as kind of a tragedy. It seemed like, you know, like we should have had a way to win him to the, the revolutionary line if you watch it. And that, that film is clearly reflecting debate that was going on within the Cuban Communist Party, right? That they kept internal, but there was debate about how do we relate to the intellectuals? How do we relate to dissidents uh, and such? And that that you can see this with different socialist uh, societies, anti-imperialist societies. I know uh, in the final years of Saddam Hussein's uh, leadership of Iraq, uh, he published a novel, uh, Zabiba, Zabiba and the King, which was, you know, it was about dialogue between an ancient Iraqi king and a woman, but it was, it was reflecting disagreements 
arguments and debates that were going on within the, the Ba'ath Socialist Party in those years. Um, so I just wanted to reflect on that. I think that's kind of an interesting way of way of showing things and that uh, that often when I look at works of art that are being promoted by socialist countries, I'm wondering, like, you know, this is saying a lot more than simply, you know, this is not just simply an expression of the author, right? These socialist countries have spent a lot of money uh, and put a lot of wealth together to, to, to put this out there. It's obviously addressing underlying issues. And I think there's there's many different examples of this. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, Wuhan, who was writing high hygiene and dismissed, was not on his own. He had obviously the support of a lot of people, uh, high ups in the um, universities, high ups um, in, the, in, the, in the Communist Party. Um, without that, the play could not be staged as um, much as it as it was, you know, in prestigious theatres. So. He obviously had the sport, and this is something very special to the Chinese Communist Party. They seem to be able to fight by using characters from the 13th century, 14th century, 15th century, uh, instead of directly saying, well, this is the line of Liu Shaoqi, and this is why it's wrong, and we're going to oppose it. I'm sure there was something like that, but I certainly have no access to that information. So I really, when I wrote my book, Socialism with Chinese Characteristics, the Marketization of the Chinese Economy, I really had to read the tea leaves. Um, most probably of my critics will say I have read the tea leaves wrongly, uh, but it's up, up to the readers to decide what, what they, what they think, think of that. But that's where I, I try to be as honest as I possibly could in gathering the information and putting it together and giving credit where credit credit was due. And my only credit to Deng Xiaoping is he was certainly very, very wily, very clever. Uh, you know, he as long as Mao was there, he could not do much. But after that, he ran rings around literally everybody. None of the gang of four, including Jiang King, were up to the mark of being able, able to, de to de deal with him. So he got rid of them. Within four weeks of Mao's death, they were all arrested and four years later were put on trial as counter-revolutionaries. Counter and the one who was hated most was Jiang King. She was portrayed as even being somebody who wanted to murder Chairman Mao and assume the leadership of the Communist Party, Party of China. She was compared to some earlier uh, queens and concubines who had done that on the bedside of the emperors and managed to get rid of them and assumed the, the position of power after the after they were dead she she was basically demonized in in in, in that that particular way uh, as indeed the the the, 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 gang, the gang of uh, four four were. Hmm. Well, let me ask, what about the role of Lin Biao? Um, because, uh, you know, I've I've written a lot and I've read a lot about Lin Biao. Um, and I guess, you know, in many ways, Lin Biao is considered to be next to Mao. He was one of the main architects of the Cultural Revolution. Um, but then there was this incident where he alleged was alleged to have tried to overthrow Mao Zedong, et cetera. Um, and and then Lin Biao, you know, he was out of the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, I think, in 1969. Um, 
So can you talk about his role? Well, Lin Biao became a revolutionary very early on. He was very prominent during the period of war, uh, war of resistance against Japan, as well as the liberation war against the reactionary Kuomintang forces. He had an impeccably good record. And from whatever I have read about him, he was not somebody ambitious who wanted to be defense minister. When Peng Taehoi was dismissed as defense minister, he was invited to become a defense minister and he reluctantly accepted it. He didn't particularly wish to be the, the defense minister. And then as the cultural revolution progressed, at a certain stage, it got quite out of hand. The masses were unleashed, right? But without the guidance of the Communist Party, the masses can do all sorts of things which, which they did. There was a lot of factionism, there were a lot of fighting. There were even incidents where one section of the People's Liberation Army was actually being opposed by another section in with guns and 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 uh, you know in in battle form and when did that happen mao Zedong then instructed lin biao and the people's liberation army to control the movement and to end all disruption and organize production uh, so so that the country didn't, didn't fall apart particularly in view of the fact that us imperialism was always looking for an opportunity to intervene the relations with Soviet Union were not very good. So in the circumstances, the movement had to be controlled and Lin Biao was extremely helpful. He helped the publication of 150 million copies of Mao's selected works and a billion copies of Mao's Little Red Book, which I'm sure, like me, you read it several times over, over Caleb. This was something all of us put in our pocket those days in a very pithy form it introduced the ideas of Mao Zedong to the average person in the industry. Mao undoubtedly was the foremost theoretician and intellectual in the Communist Party. But to actually bring him to the average person, those works of his, as well as uh, the Little Red Book, helped greatly. And Lin Biao was very instrumental in it. And precisely because he had been a loyal uh, supporter of Mao Zedong, he was at the ninth Com Com Congress of the Communist Party of China written into the constitution as being successor to Chairman Mao. He was the vice chairman of the party. So if Mao had died or retired, he would have become the chairman of the party and therefore would be the highest official in, in the party. I do not buy the thesis that he wanted to murder Mao and assume power. But when you are already slated to be the next leader. Why would you want to do such a lunatic thing? Len Biao was not a lunatic. It has never been explained to me, either by the Maoists or by their opponents, why would that, would, would, would that happen? Then we are told that he was then, one the, once the plot was foiled by Mao Zedong with the help of Chen Lai, he tried to run, run away and he was in a plane crash and died in Mongolia. Um, that's the story we know. But he died in Mongolia or his plane was downed by by some missile or something. I do not know and I don't want to stick, stick my neck on it. But what I do not buy is 
that he wanted to murder Mao and assume power is no basis. In my own view, and this is again a guess, there was a dispute which was really started when the Americans decided to change tactics with regard to China with a view to separating it, 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 it from, from, from the, from the so, 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 Soviet, Soviet Union. The question was, should China get closer to America and against the Soviet Union or the other way around? And I think Len Biao and Chen Pota were of the view that it was better to have some accommodation with the Soviet revisionists than American imperialists. And the, this became extremely controversial. And that is what really led to the falling out of Lin Biao and Chen Pota from basically, if you like, Mao Zedong. And this particular split on the one hand between Lin Biao and Chen Pota, both of whom had been very loyal to Mao and Mao Zedong and, and others, uh, was obviously something that could be used by the reformists and was one of the factors that contributed to the defeat of the Cultural Revolution eventually. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, that analysis that you put forward, uh, that's similar to what Sam Marcy and the Workers' World Party argue in their publications, uh, the suppression of the left in China, the end of the Revolutionary Mao era. They argue that Lin Biao, uh, the fall of Lin Biao was a turning point. That's when you had the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party start talking about the uh, the, the quote-unquote Soviet social imperialists, and that was the beginning of like Nixon going to China and China's, you know, alliance with the United States against the Soviet Union, the idea that the Soviet Union was the main danger. Um, and that there is a there's a, a book or or a, I guess a pamphlet or a publication that that Lin Biao gave called um, Long Live the Victory of People's War. Um it's a, and it's a fantastic book. Yeah, yeah. And I, I recall reading that. Um and, you know, I mean, he, in that document, he doesn't say the Soviet Union are imperialists. The final chapter is he says the Soviet unions are the Soviet Union are betrayers of people's war. They're 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 holding back the revolution, but he doesn't equate them with the U.S. imperialists. And he calls for kind of a global uprising against imperialism. So that would fit, you know, this idea that when when Lin Biao, you know, was was removed or whatever happened, we don't really know what happened when Lin Biao was removed. That was the turning point that led to uh, the alliance with the United States. Um, I, I would be curious also about, you know, um, there's an intellectual named Elaine Badu who gets promoted, you know, by BBC and others, or he was at one point as, as being put forward as this great Marxist intellectual. And he was arguing that the January storm, the Shanghai Commune, uh, that happened at the height of the Cultural Revolution. That was like the one example of, of communism or something. Can you talk about the January storm and the significance of those events? I guess it was like Shanghai declared itself to be a commune state or something like that during the Cultural Revolution. The, the Communist Party was removed or something like that. I believe it was in 1967, if I'm not mistaken. I don't really think I'm able to talk about it because my knowledge of that, that storm is, is is very limited, so it's better not to not to, not to open my mouth. But Shanghai was the leading center of, of the Maoists. They're very radical, and one of the two gang of four came 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 from 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 that place, and they were able to actually take control of 
of Shanghai, which was the leading commercial and industrial center of China, with a very large working class, uh, which predated the China, China, Chinese Chinese Revolution. And so, so they, they were big exposed to the mouth. And they would be, of course, the first ones to be attacked because they had to be got, got their influence had to be got rid of if the marketization uh, of, of the and the reforms would ever, 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 to, ever to succeed. Mm -hmm. Am I right in thinking, uh, Hopal, um, and maybe you know about this, Caleb, that um, one of the strategies of Mao's opponents in the Cultural Revolution was to set up kind of uh, teams of cultural revolution warriors who were you know, ultra, ultra radical, ultra revolutionary, basically provocateurs to kind of bring the whole thing into into disrepute in the in the eyes of the masses to commit errors, a bit like what you saw in the in the collectivization period in the Soviet Union, you know, where people push too hard, too fast, they lose the sympathy of the masses. Am I right that there was a bit of that going on in the Cultural Revolution as well? Well, during the Cultural Revolution, such was the prestige of Mao Zedong, everybody acted in the name of Mao Zedong his followers as well as opponents. If the, if the followers of Mao Zedong started a Red Guard uh, contingent, the, the opposite side started straight away sounding even more radical and, and in, in the na na name of Mao Zedong. Um, there was, for example, one Red Guard contingent called the Scarlet Red, Red Guards. You know, they were writers. They were children of the people who were under, at the officials who were under attack of the Cultural Revolution. And they organized things, and they actually used a lot of violence uh, against 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 their opponents during that period. So it became extremely confusing, and that's precisely why the Red Guards, within a very short period, had to be disbanded. And Mao Zedong said, "You must go to the countryside and learn from the peasants." And about 15, 16 million of these red guards were sent 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 to the countryside because they were not doing doing much much good in 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 beijing or shanghai and and, and they were they, they were sent there although they had been unleashed if you like by the cultural revolution but they were not exactly behaving in a very disciplined way and this is something which would be utilized by um, by 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 the reformers later on that this was causing disruption of production this was causing chaos and you had to restore chaos, restore stability and calm, so that China could make 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 progress. Um, and William Hinton, who is a big supporter of the Cultural Revolution, and um, it's a couple of books on the subject, particularly the one Hundred Days War," which talks about the struggle at the Tsinghua University, is 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 worth reading. But he says in the end, you know. Things went such a way that the revolutionaries were not having it all their way. A lot of people became disgruntled. Teachers wouldn't teach for fear of saying the wrong thing. All day they mumbled the writings of, of, of Mao Zedong. Students won't learn. They just became insolent and they didn't want to obey anything. And some people didn't want to learn in case they were accused of being bourgeois because they were learning something. Because it wasn't Mao's fault, but once the movement was in the hands of people who went to the other extreme, then being an intellectual itself became, uh, if you like, 
a bad mark on, on, on you. And these would be the people who would also then rally, rally around Deng Xiaoping after the death, death of Mao Zedong. So there were a lot of disgruntled people uh, who, who, who would coalesce together in order to actually um, do away with some of the things that Mao Zedong were doing. Of course, Mao Zedong was demonized. And the, 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 after the death of Mao Zedong, soon thereafter, 10 years later, the Soviet Union collapsed. So there was a barrage of imperialist propaganda, how bad socialism was, what a failed system it is. And that, of course, would eventually help the reformers very much because they were doing the reasonable thing to open up the country and bring market reforms, which are the only means, according to them, to raise standard of livings and actually increase production and productivity. Um, just quickly before we, we move on, I think it's worth thinking about um, whether this was something which was like inevitable um, or it's the only way for a, for a cultural revolution to happen. I just wanted to, to sort of ask Hapal, you know, was this really as historically unprecedented as it's, as it's made out to be? Did they have a cultural revolution in the Soviet Union? Um, you know, we, 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 it's like there's only ever been one cultural revolution, right? the way it's presented to us, and it has to look this way, right? But there was a cultural revolution in the Soviet Union, right? Was there not during the Stalin period? But, you know, the, the, the cultural revolution had a completely different meaning in the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, mobilizing the masses, mobilizing the youth in the noble task of building socialism. You know, there's a vast, very, very popular movement which wanted to build the country, to defend against foreign imperialism, to defend against internal enemies. It wasn't, uh, you know, split, spilling into, in, in, into the streets, ca ca causing um, all, all kinds of factional fighting, etc. It was very much under the control of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Personally, I prefer Stalin's methods, you know, because everything was done in the name of the Communist Party, by the Communist Party, giving the leadership as to what it should be done. Without the leadership, the masses have nothing. So you need the leadership. Otherwise, no point having a party. And this was really a contradiction at the heart of the Cultural Revolution. It was a revolution actually organized by the Communist Party in the name of the Communist Party to basically say, bombard the headquarters. That was Mao Zedong's poster when he meant, went to a meeting in August 1966 and put up this, this poster. And that is actually what eventually uh, almost compelled the people who were even opposed to him to issue what is known as the 16 Articles, which became the programmatic docu document for the launching of, 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 of the cult Cultural Revolution. But and, and a special Cultural Revolution group was, was organized, which was obviously organized by the Central Committee, but that took over the running of the Cultural Revolution. And then there are stories within stories. There were some people in that, they were ultra-lefts, but actually they wanted the defeat of the Cultural Revolution, but did it by ultra-left left, left 
left slogans. I mean, it's a really interesting lesson in, in how the class struggle continues after the revolution, isn't it? Because you have this figure, Chairman Mao, who has so much prestige. He's seen as the leader of the revolution, the theoretician of the revolution, the founder of the new China. Um, everybody has to listen when he speaks. But clearly, he wasn't at the head of a majority force inside the party. You know, to, to try to launch the masses against the party uh, is a kind of strange, you know, activity, right? He must have felt very outnumbered in terms of the weight. Uh, you know, people listen to him respectfully and in the name, but in, in his name are doing things that, you know, he doesn't agree with and he doesn't think are, are, are actually, you know, in the interests of the revolution. So, but to, it's a very kind of, I mean, you've got to really feel you're in an emergency, right? To try to mobilize the masses against the party when the party is supposed to be the one that safeguards the interests of the revolution. Well, yes, I mean, uh, I mean that 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 is not necessarily the the best method. But I'm only explaining what the Cultural Revolution was and and how it was run. And the the question you may well ask me is, do I support the Cultural Revolution? In the absence of anything else, yes, I do, because it was aimed. I mean, in the in the aftermath of the 20th Party Congress of the Soviet Union, some Christian type reforms were implemented in China, but the reformists wanted to go further, and basically they wanted to turn profit to be the regulator of production. That's where Mao Zedong put his foot down. That's what he he didn't do. So it was actually aimed at preventing the second implementation of the second edition of reforms, all the reforms that came from 1978 onwards. On that basis, it's a good thing that for at least 10 more years, they had central planning, they had a lot of development, they made tremendous progress. I mean, when you look at bourgeois writers and you look at the reformist writing, they'll tell you these were 10 years of unmitigated total disaster. Well, that's rubbish. I mean, even if you read that resolution that was passed by the, the Communist Party of China in 1981 on certain questions of the history of the Communist Party of China, it actually tells you that this disastrous period produced this, that, and the other, you know, what development there took place. The, the hydrogen bomb, sending satellites into space and re re retrieving them, bring new types of rice, new types of insulin, mapping out the history of of the of the of the Himalayas and 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 and, and Tibet, producing huge tankers, you know, hundred thousand ton tankers. With those days, were one of the one one of the biggest one. Number of th th things things were done, and everybody knows. So many million people have been lifted out of poverty since the reforms, but hardly any bourgeois writer mentions that between 1949 and 78, the longevity of life went up by 30 years, which means one year for every year of the rule, uh, you know, of the Communist Party of China. You know, life does not increase by magic. You've got to have the conditions for increasing life, having med medical health, having schooling, having housing conditions for pe pe people to live in, having food for people to eat. 
And that is what actually led to the increase in, 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 in life. I mean, from being under 40, the life increased to, uh, the longevity of life increased to 69 years by, seven, by 78. It's now more than that, it's now 76 or something. But, you know, the progress was made then, and it's on the basis of that progress, even the reformers have built, built something. As Will Hatton said, these reforms didn't come out of thin air. They're built on what was built in the time of Mao. Now, he's an anti-communist bourgeois writer, but even he's compelled, compelled to admit that that, 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 is, that that is what happened. Absolutely. Caleb? Well, there's no question that, that the reform and opening up happened on the basis of what Mao had built, uh, that they had mobilized the population to build power plants and steel mills and to build an educational system. And that, that yes, and that is one thing that there's just such a, a deceptive way that U.S. media talks about this as if, you know, China, China had no successes during the Mao years. Every success that China's ever had uh, is because of the the market reforms, uh, and that's simply not the case. I mean, there was a huge effort to build up the country from nothing that laid the basis for then being able to have the market reforms and have the economic growth that they had. And I think that gets it's so widely overlooked. Um, I think that's a, that's a, a very important point to make. I have although, some. Oh, sorry. sorry. Oh, carry on. Although I repeatedly make make it clear that I support the People's Republic of China. There's no question about that. But I also have said things which actually, for which I'm attacked, not only by average bourgeois, who actually doesn't even know of my existence or doesn't attack me, by the so-called left in, 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 in the movement as, as being, being anti-Chinese, because not, nothing whatever to do with it. My own view is that market reforms have actually put China in a position where it would not have been had it carried on with central planning. I make it repeatedly clear in my book on, on, on China that China would have made, yes, I admit the progress that is made by market reforms. I admit the fact that the Chinese have made a success of running, running a market economy. I accept that. But all the same, had they gone along the road of um, self-reliance, as Mao advocated, had they gone along to develop their own science and uh, te technology, they wouldn't be in the position where American imperialism is able to threaten them. We won't sell uh, chips chip, chip, chip to you, um, you know, which really are the very heart of production these days. There's nothing that works from your refrigerator to missiles to everything. You, 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 need, you need, need these chips. And China spent three, about 300 billion every year buying these from, from Western countries. And now, under the sanctions, they're trying to prevent China from acquiring even the chips, let alone the machines that manufacture those, those chips. They're trying to deny China to thwart its rise. And I'm saying if China had carried on its, with its own development of technology, it would have had a, a important and thriving industry that produced semi semiconductors and it wouldn't be beholden to imperialism and what's more the chinese economy would not be become an uh, integral part and an appendage of the imperialist economy the imperialists of course hurt themselves when they c 
cut China from the market, but it also hurts China. When the 2008 so-called financial crisis, i.e. crisis of overproduction took, took place, 30 million Chinese lost, lost their jobs. Tens of thousands of factories were closed. This does not happen under a planned socialist economy. You know, it only happens. Market also plans, but it, the planning under capitalism is by the market. And it's only goods into the market you realize whether there's any buyer or not, or whether you produce too few and you, you can't satisfy the market. So, that, so it's a planning that goes from one excess to another excess, too little or too much. Never, never is, 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 is it right because it's not planned. Every capitalist produces on his private account, not knowing what his brothers, the other capitalists are, are producing. They're in the market in cutthroat competition. And only then you find out what exactly whether you what you produce is totally rubbish, redundant because nobody wants it, or there's a, a saturation of the market, or you produce too little and you can't really make the best of the market. Totally. I wanted to um, bring in a slightly different angle on this discussion about the Cultural Revolution, which is a kind of a, a, a more personal one, but I think one that will um, illustrate some of the what it meant to the world to have uh, a thriving socialist country while you're alive or, or affecting your life. Uh, I think just like the Soviet Union did in Stalin's day, the, the Mao's China, and, in, and also during the period of the Cultural Revolution, uh, had a huge impact on workers outside of China also. And one of the first things that I became aware of, I'm going to show you a few of these. I have a big stack of these. I have a few, they're falling apart a little bit, a few favorite, wow. right? I grew up yeah. reading, I grew up reading stories from people's China um, as a little child. And this is this one's totally falling apart. You can see how much I, that's because I loved it. Right? I read these books many, many times as a child. And they have a strong impact. You know, they, they, they're not just nice stories. I mean, they are nice stories. They've got, you know, beautiful, beautiful pictures inside. Can you see that? See the little, little sisters there? Um, they have beautiful pictures. They're great stories, but they're stories with a meaning. And it's a, it's a meaning that resonates with people, right? That there's, that even young people can make a contribution to social life that's meaningful. They can be part of a society that's trying to do better for people. You know, every every act in these stories is infused with a kind of nobility and a meaning. Yeah. And even as a small child, that resonates with you, right? So the Cultural Revolution gave me something I didn't get from my Ladybird storybooks. You know, as a little child, it gave me a sense of, of meaning, nobility, um, communal uh, values that I didn't yeah. get from, from other stuff. And then when I was in my 20s, and I started to study Marxism, it was the Chinese editions that we studied. Yeah. Because, yeah. because the Chinese published the classics of Marxism, just as they used to do in Stalin's time, the works of Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, in very cheap, they did great translations, they were very cheap, you know, just paper bound, very simple editions, and they flooded the world. With this, so any worker who wanted to read Lenin could read Lenin. Any worker who wanted to read Marx, Engels, Stalin, they could. It was basically free. 
they're so cheap and there are so many of them you can still pick these up right if you search in your aid books or whatever people use you know for the peaking editions they're still there they're still cheap because there were so many um I, and they're in that, they're in so many right you've got a shelf full behind <laughs> and you can still get hold of these the, the, they're still really lovely to read and you get none of the you know there's a few of these classics that have been reprinted by bourgeois publishers you know even penguin has to produce capital and the state and revolution and the communist manifesto exactly that yeah those are the ones i have a, i have a i have a shelf full of them as well I have, I have. and, and and but you don't get that commentary right what you get is really useful footnotes without all the bourgeois commentary to tell you why you shouldn't listen to it which is what they do when when penguin republishes the communist manifesto as opposed to when the chinese did it sorry dad make a small correction to what you have said right yeah. up to the dying days of the soviet union the soviet union continued to publish the collected works of lenin marx and engels the only That's works right. they published Stalin, Stalin's work. And you could actually, I was a student at Delhi University, you could actually go to a place called Connaught Place, it's now called Rajiv Chak. You could go there and there would be a couple of people sitting there with copies of three volumes of Capital, all sorts of books. They were all Soviet and they were literally giving you a copy each for five rupees, five rupees. You know, it doesn't even come to five pence in English. Obviously, these guys were getting money for selling that. They were employed. But the Soviet Union actually had a tremendous contribution made that works of th these great founders of socialism and, and Lenin were distributed almost free of charge. And they were translated into so many languages. The, the, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union had a huge publications department, progressive progress publishers, and there were a lot of translators. You could find the Communist Manifesto in Punjabi and Swahili and any language you, you, you can think of. And that was a tremendous contribution. And people may not have valued because they were getting almost free of charge. I always believe it doesn't matter how poor people are, they must be paid to, made to pay for the literature. Anything they don't pay for, they don't value, they don't they don't read. And people have to really be terribly desperate and they have to come to me and promise that they will read before I let them have a book free of charge. I don't make a living out of my publications, but I think they should pay for literature. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, it is something people who can't pay for literature that makes for their liberation don't deserve to be liberated. Oh, I would agree, you know, um... I, I was in a political group. We used to give our newspaper away for free at demonstrations, and we would always then find it on the ground um, because, you know, in, in U.S. society, you're constantly, you know, I open up my mailbox every day and it's full of, you know, advertisements that I get for free and I just dispose of them because it's, you know, it's junk mail, we call it, right? But, you know, if, you, if someone pays a dollar for a newspaper or pays a dollar for a pamphlet, then that's like a way of communicating that it has value, right? That's how value is expressed under capitalism. And, uh, you know, people have often asked me why I don't make ebooks of my publications and stuff. Well, I want people to actually pay and get the get the copy of it, because I know a lot of people who download ebooks and then they just sit on their computer or they or they download it and then they search for one word and and what they find one word that they can quote mine to, to make some point or something like that. No, I want people to have a physical copy of it so they actually read it and and, you know, make a point of actually 
you know, learning from it. So I, I, I'm with you there completely. Totally. And it's, it's what you say, Caleb, there is how value is communicated in this society. And with that, whether people realize it or not, they imbibe that value, that, that understanding of value, you know, uh, it, and people aren't scared to, to pay for things if they think that it's something that they want. You know, it's it's really uh, a question of prioritizing will, and encouraging people to have that priority. People will tell you nobody wants to buy our newspapers. Before Proletarian got published, which only started with the formation of the CPGBML, we've been selling Lalkar for years. Iris I and an Indian comrade, Surinder Chima, on big demonstration could sell 100 copies each. Now that doesn't sound like much, but it, it was a lot. And people come to me and, and uh, they say, what, what, what does this lalkar mean? I said, it's an anti-imperialist journal. What does it mean? Well, it means challenge, as in throwing the gauntlet. Alternatively, if you split the word lalkar into two, it means red labor. Lal, red, car is labor in, in sans sans Sanskrit. And then some people try and get away by saying, I, I can't afford it. I said, do you buy coffee? So yes. Well, I said, it's the same as a cup of coffee next, next, next door that you will buy. So if you want to read something, here it is. So, you know, you have to persuade people to, to buy the newspaper. They don't come running towards you because, you know, we don't sell anything that's got a very attractive cover, like some of these books at, at WH Smith's or something, where the cover induces you to buy and the content is the one that disappoints you in the end. Indeed. That's not to say that we're opposed to presenting things nicely, just, just so you know. No, no, I need you to come with, come with that. I'm not opposed. <laughs> I'm not opposed to good presentation, but in the in the in the end, if there's like content, the content, yes. Content, I go for the content. Absolutely. Very good. Um, so just quickly I wanted so I, I, I wanted to just introduce that sense of you know that the that the cultural revolution and uh, the existence of a, of a strong socialist culture and ethos influenced people beyond China. Um, and I just, I just wondered if we could talk a little bit before we wrap up today about how the Cultural Revolution and this struggle affected the movement, the socialist movement in the world. I mean, you've mentioned already Hapal, the Sino-Soviet split, and of course, you know, that had already had a huge impact, which we'll have to talk about one day, right, on the world's movement. Um, but the Cultural Revolution specifically must also have, I mean, you were coming into the movement those days, Rapal, so how did it affect, you know, the atmosphere of, of socialist activity in Britain or other countries? It, 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 it enthused, enthused us a lot, lot. and be, because it was our way of using what came from China to fight against, against, against revisionism. But we didn't always use our own head. For example, after the invasion of the Czechoslovakia by the Warsaw Pact forces, the, the Soviet Union was denounced as social imperialist by the Ch Chinese Communist Party. And we went along with that. On hindsight, I, it's, the big, it's the biggest mistake I, I have personally made in my life to describe the Soviet Union as so, social imperialist. It certainly wasn't social imperialist, it was revisionist, no question about it. But the social imperialist thesis some still continue to follow that. What is known as Maoist these days, nothing to do with Mao Zedong, but are known as Hojas these days. 
you know, it's become a shibboleth. It's become a, where, where you, you just got to uh, describe Soviet Union as social imperialist. It makes no sense. Social imperialist means socialist in words and imperialist in deeds. Soviet Union's relations, economic and political, with the rest of the world could not qualify it to be an imperialist power. You know, it, it wasn't. Uh, it rendered huge amount of help to other countries. You know, Eastern European countries were getting uh, energy at well below market prices. There were a number of other countries that, that were getting help. The liberation movements from South Africa to to, uh, to Angola, to others, they were they were getting getting help, and in fact, after the death of Mao Zedong, uh, Deng Xiaoping's lot actually opposed the liberation of Angola under the leadership of the of the MPLA, because they said it was just dominated by Soviet social imperialism, and Soviet um, social imperialism was more dangerous than American imperialism. So you know, it just became a basic anti-Sovietism rather than any political and ideological analysis. Um, I was wondering, I have to wrap this up now. I have to conclude, but I feel like this could be a topic for our next podcast, the entire podcast. We could talk about this. Uh, do you, do we want to pick up this topic and, and the impact? I, think, I definitely think we should talk about the Sino-Soviet split and what time bombs were planted in our movement as a result of that. I think there's, there's a lot to go into there. So definitely Caleb, I, I would agree with that. Um, okay. I, I think we do need to wrap it up there. It's been quite a long discussion, but did you want to say anything concluding, Caleb, before we uh, do? No, I think I'm okay, but I look forward to our next podcast where we'll get into what Harpal was just talking about, about the uh, the Sino-Soviet split and the confusion, et cetera. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. So we'll do that. Thank you so much to Harpal in India, to Caleb in the States, uh, from me here in Bristol. Um, see you next time. Yep, thank you. Well, it's a perfectly good example of intercontinental solidarity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.